this Charter Day lecture, Professor Tamas Sekely from the University of Bath Department of Biology and Biochemistry talks about conflict and cooperation in the family life of birds. Oh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the University of Bath and welcome to Charter Day. My name is Sean Lutzley. I'm the Director of Development and Alumni Relations at the University of Bath. So, without further ado, I will introduce Tamas. Hello, everybody. Uh, can you hear me? Is the microphone on? Okay. So welcome, everybody. I'm Tamash. I'm sorry. I will take off my jacket because I like to do exciting things. So not, 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 don't, don't misunderstand it. So, so I really appreciate the opportunity to, to being here and give you some of the ideas we're trying to develop in my research. This is really just the tip of the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg, okay? By all means, please do have questions. I really appreciate this, okay? For about 20 years before now, uh, evolutionary biologists and even laymen thought that the family life is nothing else, just a a fully harmonious exercise. Uh, Mommy loves daddy, daddy loves mommy. And somehow from this love, the babies just dropped out. In the case of of, uh, birds, these are actually eggs. And after a while of work, when uh, uh, mommy, daddy incubates eggs, the babies are born. And of course, uh, brothers love each other. Of course, they love their sisters, and sisters love each other. But of course, all of you, I just gathered it from a lot of giggling, uh, is actually not true. And in reality, the family life is nothing else, but, but it's more like a battlefield, okay? Because what seemed a fantastic idea a while ago, it's no longer the case. The, <coughs> the parents are not always interested in their own babies rearing them. And of course, the, the bro- brothers and sisters, I have two kids, so I know, they like to beat up each other all the time. So this is actually a battleground, okay? So in my group here in the University of Bath, we're trying to reveal what drives uh, these uh, family conflicts, within family conflict. And let me just have a glimpse of our research groups. This is a nice bunch, uh, bunch of students, very international. You can just read the label where, where these students, collaborators, postdocs came from. And when I give a lecture in the US, <coughs> I always have to emphasize that yes, Bath is actually not in the lower 48, and yes, it is actually a very pretty place to be, so yes, you should visit it, and it's even a World Heritage City, and Americans like it by and large, good. So, <coughs> our group works in a number, number of uh, places, and these, uh, each globe represents a, a study area, which be pretty, pretty sort of international. I just draw your attention to these two Blobs, these are not random blobs in the Atlantic Ocean. These are actually uh, islands. Uh, uh, Next week, one of my students will go to St. Helena, if you know uh, Napoleon. And then uh, St. Helena will immediately ring a bell uh, to you. And she will work on an endangered shorebird there. And two weeks ago, I was in Cape Verde, where it looks uh, (coughs) that there is a fantastic uh, population. And we hope to get some long-term projects starting there. But to illustrate the approach we are taking, I picked this uh, small passerine bird. It's called a pendoline tit. The body mass is about a nine gram. And we work on this beast uh, back in Hungary. It lives in Europe, and uh, west, uh, pretty much most of Western Europe, and goes up to Sweden and up to Asia. You can find breeding populations uh, <clears throat> up to China. And in Hungary, they live uh, along, uh, along, uh, along uh, rivers in gallery forests and fish ponds. Can you hear me back? Everything is fine. Okay. I just, it's very hard to hear whether you can actually get the, get the words. Good. 
So <coughs> they live in fish ponds, and our, uh, our methodology as far as finding nests is actually pretty simple. You just uh, uh, cycle along these uh, uh, dikes, and you happen to, uh, to hear the, uh, the birds calling, and that's where the nests are. It's a fantastic beast. <clears throat> the male builds this uh, sort of uh, pendulum-shaped uh, uh, shaped nest, which takes a massive amount of time. It's about two weeks. And this is a very sophisticated uh, structure. You can estimate uh, probably 10,000, 20,000 small units of, uh, of uh, spider webs, uh, reeds, stem, and so forth are incorporated into this little, little thing. But of course, there's a good reason why he does it. Well, because that attracts females. So he sings, plus the, the, the nest itself attracts the females to his territory. And once the uh, female shows up, she starts laying the egg. And <clears throat> I just illustrated this, uh, 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 the structure of the nest with this. The eggs are usually, when the incubation starts, are somewhere here. Meanwhile, okay, so that's where the Coronation Street starts, or East End start. Life is actually not as nice as it seems, because whilst the female lays her eggs, the male starts to build a new nest, not very far, usually about 100 meters, on a different tree. And he actually tries to charm a different female. This is just cheeky, right? Oh, how about the female? Oh, well, oh, there are some interesting actions going on here as well. Because the female visits uh, unmated males. She actually flies over a kilometer. We know it because we're coloring these, uh, these females. And she actually copulates with them. At the end of this race for new males, so each sex is trying to find a new husband or a new wife, about one-third of all clutches and all nests are abandoned. It's absolutely striking because the guy spent two weeks building it, and the lady spent so usually about a week uh, positing the eggs in it. But of course, this strange behavior <laughs> is not entirely unknown in the animal kingdom. And there are a number of species which follow this structure, just as some individuals within a species. Of course, we know it for a good number of birds, mammals, fish, and I think our species are not exception from this. Okay? But to understand the family life of pendulantids, luckily, <coughs> we can use evolutionary biology methods. And <coughs> this is what we did. We published this work a couple of months ago in a very good evolutionary journal. And this is the only, only so-called so difficult slide in a talk that I hope to explain you very quickly. It's not difficult at all. Let me just explain the top part of it. <clears throat> you ask, what's good for the male? Well, what's good for the male? Well, lots of babies. But how can he get lots of babies? Well, if he has lots of mates, so in other words, he abandons his wife, he looks for a new, uh, new wife, and the new vines will churn out a new set of eggs, which is a new set of hatchlings, and this is good for his reproductive success. RS stands for reproductive success. But if his partner, his female, does so, then this is very bad for the male because his, his babies are actually, this is a negative sign here, his babies are actually not raised by, by his partner. It's all very well. This is somehow what, what uh, people are somehow willing to accept. But interestingly, this is the first species where it has been shown in the world, actually, in all, of all animals. The image of the situation is very similar for the female. This shows the female reproductive success. And the female, actually, if she abandons the, uh, the mate and, and, and the babies, 
and find a new husband, she actually gains, because with a new husband, she will produce a new batches of eggs, which will, which will lead to new batches of hatchling and higher reproductive success. And if, she, if her partner does the same, this is actually very bad for her. Because instead of staying at home and rearing her babies, he also goes away and tries to find a new partner. So at the end of the day, <clears throat> what drives this massive, uh, massive breeding system, as far as pendulantists are concerned, is the different interests. So what is good for you is actually bad for, might be bad for your partner, and vice versa. What is, bad for, what is good for your partner might well be actually bad for you. That's the evolutionary conflict. But of course, <clears throat> we all know that uh, the other major force in, in, in animal behavior and evolutionary biology is actually cooperation. So not, not everything can be explained by conflict. And in fact, if you go to nature, you often see animals uh, cooperating with each other. They are, are, are forming uh, schools. They, uh, they hunt together. In the case of humans, they, they work together. And of course, you all are uh, aware that one of the most charitable features of our, uh, our species is actually cooperation and donation without expecting any immediate direct benefit. Okay? And Lord May, who used to be a, a head of the Royal, President of Royal Society, he actually he likes big words, but <clears throat> this, is, this is one, one statement I actually do agree. The most important unanswered question in evolutionary biology and more generally in the social sciences is how cooperative behavior evolves and how it can be maintained in human and other animal groups and societies. So how is cooperation work? Well, we actually did a fair amount of study on animal cooperation, and to illustrate some of the approaches, I picked this uh, small beast. It's a, it's a Kentish plover, body mass about 40 gram, and where you find uh, where you actually expect cooperation well, where the environment is very harsh. So where you can have it, we you either go to uh, one of the, uh, the poles, or we actually uh, went to uh, uh, went to Arabian desert. So we went to Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates, and picked this species because both parents incubate their eggs. Okay, so there is some cooperation. So to understand these plovers, it's a bit of <clears throat> a bit of natural history. I don't know whether you can see it uh, from the back. Yeah, this is this is the beast. Yeah, it's pretty brownish. So you need to be a, a good field uh, field ornithologist to uh, spot them. The nest. This is a nest. They usually have th three eggs. <clears throat> this is my photo from two years, uh, two weeks ago from Cape Verde. Very hard to find, but you, you, you uh, with a bit of practice, you can manage. And when the eggs hatch, they produce these uh, tiny little uh, cuddly creatures. Three babies pop out. They hang. This is actually the eggs nest crate. And within a few hours, they dash out of the nest, and you have hundreds of hectares with cracked mud, and three might have a baby. You see that? So that's a chick, okay? So you have a few hundreds of these crack mud, and three cracks have, uh, have, have babies. So that's a bit of a challenge to find out. But of course, while, you, while you're chasing your uh, highly scientific objectives, you have to actually figure out some methodology. In the first year of Kentish Law study, all students wanted a fancy four-by-four. And I just told them, look, at the British Academia, we can't really afford to have four SUVs for all, uh, all graduate students. So I invented this very cheap. It's definitely not SUV price category. It's a mobile high. It's about 200 euros. And you can spend the day inside. You can push it along. And it's a fantastic, uh, it's a mobile high. We actually haven't patented yet, but it should be. <laughs> 
And you, of course, you have, uh, <coughs> have visitors who are interested in fundamental evolution or biology, and they want, <laughs> want some training. Okay. So what happens if in, in Arabia uh, when these plovers nest? Well, it is a very harsh environment. You just see, I, I probably don't go through, uh, through uh, all details of this graph. I just point out some of the key features here. These are three days, uh, both in the top and in the bottom. So day one, day two, day three. So the day starts, you just focus on the green, green curve. The day starts uh, <clears throat> at about 20 degrees. But by around 8 in the morning, it's already 40 Celsius on the soil. And uh, by midday, it hits uh, 55. In fact, it does hit over 60. So we have measurements for 65 degrees. This is uh, soil temperature around the nest. So what happens if the parents start quarreling? Oh, no, 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 I don't do the washing up. You must do No, 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 you do the washing up. No, no, no. It's just the eggs just boil, okay? So there is not much scope for cooperation. Uh, sorry, uh, conflict. So what we did uh, to study this uh, with a, with a uh, clever postdoc, Andras Kostolanyi, we built a de uh, device, uh, this is shown here, which not only took the behavioral record every so often, but <clears throat> there was a scale under the nest, uh, temperature logger and so forth, but there was a <clears throat> remote control as well, which, uh, by which Andras was able to cool down the, the, the nest temperature, and this is actually shown by the by the, by the red, uh, red graphs here. So when he needed for a particular treatment, he just switched on this remote control uh, gadget and the egg temperatures inside started to cooling down. And the question we actually addressed and addressing whether the parents help out each other if they face difficulty. And the answer uh, is actually they do. They do help out each other. But when, when the big need is over, and in this beast, the Kentish power, this is after hatching of the young, then <clears throat> these are precocial. In other words, the babies, so this is a fantastic photo by Larry Young, a conservationist from California. Uh, the, <clears throat> the, the babies no longer, no longer need as much care as before. As they grow, they develop thermoregulation. So the parental care is, is less and less important for them. And this is the point where one parent, usually the female, surprisingly, just goes away. So she thinks, okay, sorry, I'm fed up, so I'm off. And this is, this is actually a typical family, family photo. This is a male uh, attending three half-grown babies. <clears throat> but as an evolutionary biologist, uh, you study these uh, fantastic uh, ideas like conflict and cooperation. Of course, you uh, go to the field. And year after year, you realize that, uh, hey guys, there's a bit of problem here because these natural populations are rapidly disappearing. So that leads to a conservation uh, issues. And one of the species I like to illustrate how we try to, um, try to solve issues related to con conservation is actually a great bustard. This is the heaviest flying bird. Uh, the, it's a magnificent uh, beast. Uh, the, the males can go up to 25 kilos. Once in a uh, once long time in the past, they live from UK up to up to uh, China. But now the, the habitat. This is how the natural habitat <clears throat> look like. This is not nothing. You, you might think, oh, this is nothing. But this is actually a great bustard habitat. A typical chap. 
Today, only remnant population remains in just pockets. Uh, and what was the main reason? Well, the usual story, unfortunately, which keep repeating it hundreds and thousands of times, hunting, habitat loss, and nest loss. So it's, it's agriculture machine. These, uh, these machines literally just cut half the incubating female because the natural response is to crouch. Okay, They don't fly away. They just crouch, and that cuts. Good. So it's pretty scary. So a few years, about 10 years ago, a group of dedicated ornithologists established the Great uh, Bustard Group. And uh, <clears throat> since 2003, they imported a good number of chicks from Russia under uh, their pre- uh, permit. This uh, exercise is uh, uh, completely anti- uh, uh, privately funded. They, they have their own beer, and I think five, they get 5p every, uh, every uh, stonehenge. So please do bring. I don't think they have it here, but whenever you have it, please, please do drink a lot of beers, okay? Because that helps the project. And uh, <clears throat> the first major headline was actually this summer when the first female ever that bred uh, in uh, 175 years in Britain produced two eggs, okay? That was a major, major story. Just a quick update. <clears throat> this is what, what we're doing uh, right now. This is uh, <clears throat> very recent. We started radio telemetry a few v- uh, weeks ago um, uh, on the release birds, and using these high-profile high, uh, satellite, uh, satellite images, we will be able to, uh, to predict uh, the the habitat, habitat demand of these bees, the movement, and collect a vast, vast, vast amount of, uh, of data. This is actually the great bastard is of interest because the, the males have, <coughs> have interesting behavior. If you ever want to see some fantastic uh, uh, animal behavior in nature, great bastard will be one of them. And the males congregate in a spring in sites called lakhs. This is one sketch from Hungary. And they display for females. And one interesting question, I'm still puzzled, where will be the lakhs here in Salisbury? Because there are no individuals who actually know the traditional lakh size way back 200 years. And this is the final slide of this, uh, of this presentation because the time is running out. This illustrates the overall approach what we in the biodiversity lab here at Bath trying to establish. The first point is discovering. So we, we want to understand what's going on in nature, and it leads to a good number of publications. This is a, a book I co-edited this, uh, this, uh, this summer at the Oxford University Press. But of course, the second step is actually transmit this knowledge Obviously, your job is to do it at the university. That's why we are paid for, by and large. But you have to go out and you talk to the public and actually spread the knowledge to those ones who are uh, less fortunate than our our own (laughs) students. And we do a lot of work in Madagascar. We train students in Mexico, Turkey, and uh, we're starting projects in Russia. And finally, this (coughs) training and sort of changing the brain uh, of the people is not enough because you actually want uh, some actions taking place, because we just can't wait a few more decades to, uh, uh, for, the, uh, for the situation to resolve. And this is what I illustrated, the Great Bustard Project, and this is what pretty much we're starting to do in Cape Verde, where the site we just identified uh, two weeks ago is uh, <coughs> designated for development for hotels and villas. So we started to, uh, networking with people to stop it or actually negotiate for the interest of birds. Thanks for the attention. Thank you.